0: Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Father, thank you that you've removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. You've buried them in the deepest sea. That you do not hold them against us, and in that sense, you remember them no more and all because of the blood of the lamb. Thank you for the pictures you give us all the way through Scripture with Abel bringing a blood sacrifice, whom you said by the Lord Jesus that he was a prophet of God and he preached what all the prophets preached, the coming of Messiah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the Passover lamb, the unblemished lamb that the nation of Israel would put on the doorpost and on the lintel picturing what John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, we are so blessed and grateful that you would open up blind eyes, that you as the sinless Son of God provided a way of escape with your own precious, innocent, sinless blood as a payment for our sin. Father, we thank you that he was raised from the dead. And that you have declared to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And thank you, Spirit of God, for giving us this book we call the Bible from beginning to end. And as we read it, we also need your ministry of teaching and illumination today that we might understand what it says and apply it to our lives. So let me be your instrument. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me that Jesus the Lord might be lifted up. And I ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the Epistle of James, chapter 5. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this little short letter, just 108 verses. Some of you have read it once a week since we started last December, and I commend you for your faithfulness. Well, today, we come to the final message here in the Epistle of James. Remember, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and he is writing to give us instruction to put into practice. The writer to the Hebrews says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God gave His Word not to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives, not to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's revelation, when it's read and when it is studied, it demands a response. When God says something, then I am obligated to respond. And so when you come to this little letter, you discover that there are a few books in the New Testament that are so packed with application. And so most of us as pastors will very often go to the book of James just because it is so illustrative of so many biblical principles. Some of you ever before we started felt like you at least had a broad handle on James. Now, before I read our letter this morning and the verses that we want to focus on, let me just remind you once again, one final time of the broad context and then the immediate context. I hope by now maybe you have even the outline of James memorized that I gave you, as you read it over and over and over again, it's clear there are three sharp divisions. You can call them what you want, but there are three divisions. In chapter one, he deals with the development of faith. And some of you with each chapter, I gave you some key words to write out in the margin, and you've been doing that since we began last December. In chapter one, he deals with three problems. The problem of pain as faced in the trials of life that we encounter. Not if, but when we encounter various trials. Then the problem of temptation. We know something about how temptation functions so that God can give us the victory. And then the problem of not applying Scripture, being someone who just hears the Word of God but does not obey it. When you come to chapter 2, you turn another corner. In chapters 2 through 4, he deals with the distortion of faith. In chapter 2, he deals with our testimony, our testimony in terms of our relationship to one another, Our testimony in reference to good works, which are a proof that we genuinely know the Lord, and then our testimony in relationship to our tongue. God wants to tame the tongue so that we can speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter 4, if you remember, there are three problems He gave us that we should avoid. There's the problem of worldliness. God has called His church to holiness. It's not our likeness to the world that gives us a platform. It's our differentness from the world, our Christ-likeness that gives us an audience. Then, if you remember, he dealt with the problem of judging. When we speak unfairly of another brother in Christ, we cannot read a person's motives. Only God can read motive. And then, if you remember, the third problem in verses 13 through 17 of that chapter, the problem of perspective. He reminded us our life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. And so we need to live with an eternal perspective. So chapter 1, the development of our faith. Chapters 2 through 4, the display of our faith. And then when we came to chapter 5, we came to the third section, the dominion of faith. And he gives us a picture of God's sovereignty, of God's dominion, exercised in three different dominions or dimensions of life. If you remember, he taught us three different realms in which we should display our faith. The first concerns our possessions. If you remember verses 1 through 6, he dealt with these believers, many of whom were poor because they were persecuted. They've been scattered by the Roman government. He's writing to the diaspora, to Jewish believers who are scattered like seed, and many were under the, impression in, under the oppression of Rome and dependent on rich, wealthy landowners in a culture that was largely agriculture, and they were persecuted. So then in verses 7 through 12, he says you need to be patient. God is just. Someday God will make every wrong right. God's justice will be completely displayed. And he illustrated that, if you remember, with Job. Then we came to the third section, the final verses, and by the way, These sections are not unrelated because in the final section, he underscores the need for prayer. And, of course, you cannot suffer and go through heartache and persecution well unless you are a man or a woman of prayer. Now, we saw that one of the nicknames for the Apostle James was old camel knees. We have a record from Eusebius. He lived in 264 A.D., And he said that James the Apostle, speaking of this James, not the James who is beheaded. We saw there are four different James in the New Testament in the introductory session. This Apostle prayed so much that his knees were as hard as a camel's. In other words, what we're speaking of here is not some theoretician, but a practitioner. Someone who lived what he said. This is not just something he heard or read in a book, so to speak. This is something he did as a way of life. And so he's giving us some practical advice, taking prayer, whether we're suffering, whether we're cheerful, whether we're sick, or whatever we're going through, and then putting it and fleshing it out in our everyday life. Okay, James 5, beginning now in verse 16, where we left off. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. Now, everyone knows we ought to pray, that we ought to pray more than we do pray, Samuel Chadwick was a great pastor in England who lived about 100 years ago. Many of you have heard these words. They're rather famous today. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. Satan mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Yet Satan often does not tremble very much the modern evangelical church, because we don't pray that much and we give him little reason to tremble. Why is he convinced so many of God's people not to earnestly pray? I suppose if you had an apparition of the evil one and he came and said, do not pray, we would want to pray all the more. But he is so much more subtle than that. He comes with his fiery darts. One, he may, may make you feel unworthy to pray. Who are you to pray? Look what you just did. Look what you just said. You don't deserve to pray. Or sometimes he tries to convince us that prayer really doesn't make that big a difference. So why even bother? And another reason sometimes is because we say we don't really know how to pray. Well, part of learning how to pray is praying, but it's also praying in according to the dictates of Scripture. But you can read what the Scripture says about prayer and not do it. You can read a book on swimming and never jump in. And so James wants to unfold for us how it is that God answers prayer. He's going to give us some very practical truths, among other things, on how to pray. There was a brother by the name of Andrew Murray. He died in 1917. He was a Reformed pastor. He wrote a number of books on prayer that I've read and he said this, it is in prayer that we change our strength for the supernatural strength of God. I believe that's true. Now, he also said that God works only in answer to our prayers. That was a pretty bold statement for a Reformed pastor who'd dump everything on the sovereignty of God. And so it was a radical statement, but a healthy statement, though not entirely true. There are some things God does in spite of the fact that we don't pray. But much of what God does that is fruitful and lasting, he does in response to prayer. Dr. R.A. Torrey, another great pastor, died in 1928. He said, nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond the will of God. So just know that the church is not suffering today because there's not power available, that there's not a God in heaven who wants to work amongst his people the church is suffering today because of a lack of human prayer. And the longer I am a Christian, the more I am impressed with the subtlety of the evil one. If I were the devil, I would not try to confuse in the trivial areas of life. I would try to confuse in the crucial areas of the Christian life. Satan doesn't mind if you evangelize, just as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you serve in vacation Bible school coming up, just as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you minister in Awana or teach an adult Bible fellowship, as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you pour over the Scriptures and study all week long, just as long as you don't pray. In fact, he'd rather have you study the Scripture without prayer because then you will develop a case of spiritual pride and really disqualify yourself for God's use. Satan does not mind how compulsively active you are in this church just as long as you don't pray. James wants us to pray, and so he gives us three principles to encourage us, to motivate us on how to see really, truly genuine answers to prayer. There's a note-taking outline. If you're new, those online, you can print it out. Principle number one Answered prayer involves a confession. Answered prayer involves a confession. Seven times in verses 13 to 18, James mentions prayer. We've already seen when afflicted in verse 13, he wrote, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. In verses 14 and 15, he asked the question, Is any among you sick? Let him pray. Now in verse 16, if you're corrupted by sin, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that the uh, healing, the physical problem that this individual or individuals or people in the first century were experiencing, such that they called the elders of the church, was related to unrepentant sin. Sometimes God disciplines our physical temple with sickness, with weakness, and sometimes premature death. It's an expression of His love, it's an expression of His grace, it's an expression of His kindness because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so they call for the elders of the church, the individual, not because the elders are medical doctors, but because they typically would have put this person under church discipline. And the goal is to restore. Now he broadens the principle. Look at verse 16. Therefore, circle that word. You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore, therefore? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. He's turning a corner. You know, every single word is inspired in the text. So you read it carefully and you will see there's a change of pronouns. He's gone from the pronoun him to the pronoun you. In other words, while he is focused on the individual who is sick due to unrepented sin that brought God's discipline, now he's broadening this confession, not just from him, but to you in general. And he's telling us to confess our sins to one another. And the verb tense in the original is such, make it your habit to confess your sins to each other. The tendency sometimes in our pride is to hide our sin rather than to confess our sin. You've heard it said, to err is human... But to cover up is too. And if you will study the history of the great revivals, you will learn that the great revivals and awakenings, and technically there's a difference that we tend to blur the terms together, but the great revivals and the history of the church did not come from great singing, didn't even come from passionate evangelism, didn't even come from uh, great preaching, they came from great confession. It was when the people of God dealt with their sin before God that made the evangelism and the singing and the preaching so effective that swept tens of thousands into the kingdom. Confession. Confession of sin, not just to God, but to one another. Now, the word confess, most of you know it's the Greek word homo, homo, homo sapien, homosexual. Homo, the prefix, means the same, Legeo to say, Homilegeo means to say the same thing. That's what you're doing when you confess your sin. You're saying what God says about sin, what He has said about that, and you're very specific. So we need to confess our sins, sometimes not just to God, but sometimes to another person. You see the word sins there? It's plural, you might wanna circle the letter S. That's not by accident. The smallest jot and tittle is inspired by the Spirit of God. In other words, what he is addressing here is not just, oh, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. But he's addressing here specific personal acts of sin. So it's not simply, if I was wrong, will you forgive me? Or I was wrong, will you forgive me? Or I am sorry that I was wrong, will you forgive me? but I was wrong, I am sorry, and then you name it. You see, that involves a little more humility. Confess your sins. He's dealing here with specific acts of sin. Now, we need to ask, who is the one another? Now, if you're Roman Catholic in some branches of the Lutheran Church where you have people go and confess their sins to a priest, this is a headquarters verse. But contextually, the one another is not in reference to a priest. He's broadened it to the whole body of Christ, to any believer at all. Now, some will quickly reject that, and they know that there's no biblical basis for confessing your sin to a priest, that he might somehow absolve you. And they say, well, this is the biblical basis for therapy sessions where we get together in small groups and we hang out our dirty laundry. And from about 1990 to 2005, scores of books were written in evangelicalism that fostered this way of thinking. Certainly, that's not what God has in mind. So, some in reacting to our Catholics and Lutheran friends who use this to confess to a priest or to get involved in some therapy session that does typically more harm than it ever does good, he's talking about confessing sin to another brother. Now, stop and think for a moment. In Scripture, there's direct confession to God. When, when you've sinned against God, then you confess directly to Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, our, our heart needs to be clear vertically, but it also needs to be clean horizontally And Jesus taught this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, you come to worship the living God at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you. He doesn't want you just to be religious and to jump through all the hoops and go through all the externals. He says, if your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. So if our prayer is to be effective, we need to be clean vertically, we need to be clear horizontally. And that's really why James is saying here, confess your sins to one another and pray to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. He's not telling us to broadcast our sins because the principle that runs through scores of passages in Scripture is that the circle of confession is as broad as the circle of sin. So if you've offended your wife, you go to your wife. If you've offended your boss, you go to your boss. If you've offended a group of friends, then you go to that group of friends. If you've offended the whole church, then you bring it to the whole church. And so the nature of church discipline. Some of you have never seen us practice church discipline because you've never, ever been here on a Wednesday night. Now, often, and we do it on Wednesday night for a purpose, because it's a home crowd. It's God's people, typically. Very rarely do we even have visitors on Wednesday night, occasionally, but not many. Every Sunday morning, there are people who are visiting us here. And often, church discipline will stop. You go to your brother, you reprove him in private. Sometimes he doesn't listen. You take two or three, and that's the end of it. In fact, I would say that's the pattern In my experience, and being in ministry 45 years almost, it's always, almost always stopped at the second level, but occasionally it goes to the third level. We've seen that on some Wednesday night services, six instances if I remember. And then sometimes, the person doesn't listen to the church, and he's excommunicated. Why? Because we hate him? No, because we love him. Because when you put him out of the safety umbrella of the local assembly, you give God freedom to discipline him in a new way that would bring him to repentance, but you also protect the testimony of the local fellowship. But occasionally, I can think of two occasions, where of those six, they came back. And so on a Sunday morning, we said, so-and-so, as you know, was living in adultery, but they've cleared and cleaned Their walk with Christ and ask you to restore them back. That's important. Otherwise, an unbelieving world says they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites there at Community Bible Church. We're a collection of sinners, saved by grace, and any of us have the capacity to do anything. But we also need to maintain our testimony as clean and pure. Now, if you were here last time, we saw some physical ailments that come from the loving, disciplining hand of God that can bring healing. So, when the elders have a sense, no, this person is genuinely repentant. We recognize their sickness is because of the hand of God when we put them under church discipline, but they're genuinely repentant. And so, their prayer offered in faith because they have a sense that this repentance is true, it's not, well, maybe they'll be healed or might be healed. They will be healed. That's the promise. And that's the context of the anointing of oil and the prayer over the individual. Now, interestingly, again, he's changing the pronouns from him to you because now he's broadening the application. And he uses this word healed. And by the way, the word healed here in the New Testament is used not just a physical healing, but spiritual healing. You might want to circle that word and write out in the margin Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. It's the next book over. Let me read it to you. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And the word here, iodomai, healed, is a metaphor in this context for spiritual strength. Strong hands, strong knees, strong feet that this writer is describing— will bring spiritual health, it will bring spiritual endurance, that you can keep on keeping on, keeping walking with the Lord. Now, even so, James wants us to understand that before we can go to God in prayer, sometimes there are some things that we need to make right directly with Him, but here, of course, he's focusing on other people. You say, well, pastor, what if I've gone to an individual and I've earnestly asked them as best... I could in humility, and I took full responsibility naming the sin, but they still would not release me. Well, you are released in God's eyes. Paul clearly says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's conditional here, meaning it's not always possible. Sometimes some people, because they have an unforgiving heart, either because they're out of fellowship or they've never been saved in an unbeliever, typically is an unforgiving person. Jesus taught that principle, but a believer can also withhold forgiveness. But if possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And I should say while we're here, if someone has wronged you, you have no justification to hold a grudge against them. And if you do, then you will break fellowship with God. Forgive one another just like God in Christ has forgiven you, whether they ever come and ask for forgiveness. Now, that's the first principle for effective prayer. Answered prayer involves a confession. Second, there in your note-taking outline, answered prayer involves a command. It involves a command. Did you notice that the Apostle James commands us, it's an imperative in the original, pray for one another? Hold your finger here and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. Go to Luke chapter 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Don't lose your finger here in James. Jesus also admonished us, and beyond his admonishment, he commanded us to pray. So if we don't obey the command to pray, then we are living in disobedience. Listen to these words, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, some would place the emphasis of this parable to say that if you do not pray, then you will lose heart, you will get discouraged, and you will just quit. Now, that's true, but that's not the focus of this parable. And if you read the verses that would follow, that would be crystal clear to you. The entire parable is teaching about our praying at all times, and in the process of praying at all times, we don't give up, we don't lose heart. Jesus did not mean that we should always be in our knees. He didn't mean that we should always be in our prayer closet, that we should always go away with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Obviously, we can't do that. He's speaking here of a spirit of prayer. With the same encouragement, the Apostle Paul acknowledged 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now, the adverb in that verse, pray without ceasing, is one word, and it's used in the first century of someone with a hacking cough. You ever have just kind of a hacking cough and there's just that little <clears throat> tickle in your throat and <clears throat> you've got this constant reminder that there's a problem? He uses that as a picture, a word picture. Pray without ceasing. It's just a, a constant reminder of our need to spiritually endure and to keep on praying without ceasing. The Puritans would call this practicing the presence of God. And so Jesus makes a command here that we're to pray and not to lose heart, just like James says, pray for one another constantly, continually. And so prayer, of course, is more than just lip service. The lips and the heart are to be connected in Scripture. He's describing a desire or pray, pray uh, uh, in earnestness, uh, the, the, the desire and the will of our heart to bring something to the living God. And if our hearts are continually bent in God's direction, then we're going to be talking with God. How often do you talk with God? I hope is a way of life. I took a study break in the middle of the day. I'd been studying for about seven hours, and I said, I got to clear my mind. I went out and cut the grass for two hours, and, you know, it was a great prayer time on my lawnmower. Lord and I had great fellowship. We need to be in constant, habitual, continual, unceasing, unending prayer. And if our hearts are bent towards God, they will be. And so he's saying, don't lose heart. Keep on going. Why would he say don't lose heart? Because prayer sometimes can be nothing short of hard work. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Colossians Colossians chapter 4? He spoke of the necessity and the labor that comes with prayer. Listen to these words. He said to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote. Then he spoke in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, in other words, he's a member there in your fellowship. That's the Epaphras I'm speaking of, he says. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul says... There's a man in your fellowship who's with me because it was a common name. He wanted to let them know which Epaphras he was speaking of who always earnestly labors for you in prayer. It's hard work. And by nature, we tend to be lazy. And because we lack discipline sometimes and we just give up, we lose heart and we stop praying. It's easy to lose heart either through ignorance of what God has revealed about prayer. Sometimes you can lose heart in unbelief. You don't have a promise that God has given that he really wants you to claim. But sadly, too often, we lose heart because it is hard work. And because of that, prayer tends to be our last resort instead of our first response. And so, notice how the parable ends here in verse 18, it's critical. Look at chapter, uh, verse 18 of this chapter in Luke, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the parable concludes with a question that can't be divorced from the context, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. What has he been discussing? He's been discussing his return from heaven. And of course, when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to a time of spiritual apathy, spiritual corruption, unbelief, apostasy, and wickedness. He just likened his return in chapter 17 to the days of Noah. That will be days of lawlessness and violence and sexual immorality, as Genesis indicates. And he also likened his return to the days of Lot, which of course were days of sexual impropriety and perversion, homosexuality. And we would say transgenderism today, all part of the package, both of which are spoken of in Scripture. And of course, when Christ came back in Noah's day, or excuse me, when God came in Noah's day with the great flood, there was only eight people who were alive who were saved from the great flood. Now, there were people during the years and decades of his preaching who were saved. We know of some. They're recorded in Scripture, but they were dead by the time the great flood came. They had already gone home, so to speak, with Jesus, to use New Testament terminology. But on the day the great flood came, there were only eight believers in the whole planet. And on that great complex we call Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around it, there was only three individuals who were rescued. You say, What's your point? And by the way, so the vulture metaphor that Jesus gives at the end of chapter 17 in verse 37. There's judgment coming. Don't lose heart. What's his point? As we move to the end of the age, things will not get better, things will get worse. And so in 1 Timothy 4, that speaks of latter times. He speaks of doctrines of demons. I hope before we begin our next book of the Bible, it's not going to be the very next sermon, but maybe in early September, I'm going to preach a sermon on the doctrines of demons that are so prevalent in the days in which we live, God willing. And then 2 Timothy 3 speaks of the last days. In both chapters of Scripture, speak of the perilous times, of the dark, wicked scene. And so what does that mean? Men will lose heart. People's believers' hearts will even grow cold. They'll be like the church at Laodicea. Do lukewarm Christians pray? Ha, not on your life. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from it come the issues of life. We need to guard our hearts in these days. And prayer is one of the greatest Christian privileges that God has given us, but it's also one of the greatest Christian failures. Remember, James has already said in chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And so God commands us to pray. Or to put it here in the context, I'm back in James 5 of this paragraph. When you are suffering, people need more than your sympathy, they need your prayer. When someone is sick, they need more than your pity, they need your prayer. When someone is corrupted by sin, they need more than your condemnation. They need your intercession. And so James wants our prayer life to be effective, which leads me into the next point. Since we are all sinners and we all stumble in many ways, answered prayer involves a confession. And since we can all get discouraged and lose. Heart, answered prayer involves a command to keep on praying. But third, answered prayer involves a condition. It involves a condition. Now, James has already taught us in this epistle this critical principle concerning a condition for effective prayer. If you remember in the opening chapter, he said in James chapter 1 and verse 6 that our prayer needs to be done in faith without doubting. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Likewise, if you remember in chapter 4 and verse 3, he said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures but here James gives us another condition. Answered prayer is described as effective prayer. In other words, it's only effective prayer what the King James translates effective fervent prayer that gets answered. Effective prayer, two words in Greek, the King James trying to capture this word effective. They say effective fervent. It's difficult to capture with a single English word. So while we're on this condition concerning effective fervent prayer, I think it might be helpful to pause for just a moment and to see what Jesus says about effective fervent prayer. The half brother of Christ, Jesus had the same mother as James who writes this epistle but Jesus had no human father but they're half brothers. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. You really need to turn there. I'm thrilled to see so many of you bringing a Bible and if you don't own one, you should come to meet the pastor and you will be you will receive one. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus underscores four critical dimensions for effective prayer. First in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, on how to pray without being hypocritical. Look at Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Well, you notice verse 5 says they love to stand and pray. You might want to underline that word love. It's the word agapao, for God so loved. It's used sometimes of God's love. Sometimes it's just used of a willful decision that men make. They love their evil deeds. Same word. So it's not always descriptive of God's love. Well, these men willfully love to pray. You see, the problem is that they do not love prayer nor do they love the God to whom they are praying. What they do love is the attention that prayer brought them. And of course, there's nothing wrong with standing when you pray. There are numerous instances in Scripture where God's men and women stand when they pray, the Lord Jesus included. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, the average posture of a Jew in the first century was standing. In fact, to this day, most Jews pray in that way. They stand and they Stand with uplifted hands. And if you went into a church service in the first century, they'd stand up and pray. And I don't think it's by accident when we went to the Ukraine, every time it was a time for prayer, people stood up and they prayed. We brought the Ukrainian pastors here, their very first trip to America. What did they do? I said, let's pray, and everybody else is sitting, and they stand up. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with standing up, but that certainly is not the only position For prayer, for that matter, there's nothing wrong with standing up in the synagogues in praying as the Pharisees did, because the Bible teaches that God's people are to pray together. And the synagogue, the assembly, is where God's people met. For that matter, there was nothing wrong with praying on the street corner if their motivation was to carry God's name and God's glory into the public arena. Now, here in the model prayer, the Lord Jesus taught us that we're to pray corporately. Do you remember that? He didn't say, when you pray, say, my father. But when you pray, say, our father. That's corporate prayer that he is underscoring. And so clearly from Acts and from the instruction in the model prayer, there's nothing wrong with public prayer unless, unless, unless it's done for the applause of men. So Jesus taught if prayer is to be effective, it cannot be hypocritical. But also it needs to be personal. Look at verse 6. But you, by the way, the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the inside of the kingdom. So all the way through that sermon, he says, it is written, it is said, but I say, I say, And so here he is saying, but you, you're to be different from the Pharisees because he's going to show them that if someone really meets the living God, they have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do in public, but it's what you do in private. And God knows that Phariseeism is far from dead. If the only time we pray in a week is when a pastor says, hey, will you come and pray at the end of the service for us? Or we're going to have a time of prayer, and that's your prayer for the week? That's pharisaical kind of prayer. That's not what needs to be true of us. We need to have a personal private time with God in prayer. And sometimes when I've led the prayer meeting, I'll say, this is not the time to catch up on your personal prayer life. So just make your prayer to the point where we can hear it so that we can agree in our hearts. He says, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Now, your inner room might be outside. When you study the prayer life of Christ, most of the prayers that he did were done outside. Your inner room might be a rooftop like Peter there in Acts 10 as he's praying. Your inner room might be your automobile during your lunch hour. Your inner room might be a literal closet that you climb into to shut out the whole world. But the real test is not what's done in public, but what you do in private. And Jesus taught that if prayer is to be effective, it can't be hypocritical, it needs to be personal, but he also underscored it needs to be thoughtful. Look at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. The word Gentile can refer to someone who's not a Jew, or it can refer synonymously with a pagan. And so some English translations, instead of translating it Gentiles, which is what the Greek text does, they just translated pagans. Don't pray like a pagan. And of course, the word Gentile and pagan was synonymous. Why? Because most Gentiles were raw pagans in that day. His point is, don't use meaningless repetition as the pagans do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. You might want to underline or circle meaningless repetition. It's the Greek word badalagao, it means to stammer. It almost sounds in Greek like babble. And so the Net Bible translates it babble. The Greek word has the sense of blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is changing gears here to tell us about another common abuse in prayer. If we are to have effective fervent prayer, then we don't want to be like the hypocrites who misuse the purpose of prayer. But we also need to know that verbosity is another misuse of prayer that we think because we are praying this long prayer and using all these words, that somehow that is more spiritual and going to move the hand of God. Now, understand, God's not against a long prayer. If you remember in Luke 6, 12, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. That was long. You ever spent a whole night in prayer? I've only done it a couple times in my life when I was in college. <laughs> the whole night in prayer, though, there have been times when we've gone through real struggles in the church, and I'll get up at 3 a.m., and I'm just so burdened, I can't do anything but pray. But Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. For that matter... There's nothing wrong with repeating a prayer because Jesus modeled that for us. Remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and three times he repeats himself. Matthew records, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. For that matter, neither is he speaking against persevering prayer. He's just told us in Luke 18:1 that we are to pray at all times, that we're not to quit, we're not to lose heart. But what he is condemning is people with these many words who are verbose, but the lips are not connected to the heart. That's the real problem that he's highlighting. And while we're here, let me say you don't need to pray like a theologian or a poet or some scholar. Some of the most earnest prayers I hear come from the newest Christian. They don't know all the lingo yet. When I became a Christian, it was still in vogue. I was 18, and I went to my first evangelical church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and everyone in the church prayed in Shakespearean English, and I just couldn't pray like that. It was a carryover from the 17th and 18th century because Shakespearean English, King James, was the English of the day, and people just kind of were trained to pray that way, and I thought, I I don't even know the lingo. (laughs) I was having real difficulty. So understand, it's not the language of your prayer. It's not the length of your prayer. It's the earnestness. It's the heart of your prayer. And let me also say that when you pray, remember that you're praying to a person. Don't use God's name like a punctuation mark. Lord, we thank you, Lord. Lord, that we can come, Lord, into your presence, Lord. That you care about our needs, Lord. And we're here today, Lord, to plead with you, Lord, so that we can live for you, Lord. Do I say, Audrey? Audrey? would you make me lunch? Because if I make lunch, Audrey, I'll make a mess, Audrey, out of the kitchen, Audrey. And I know that I'd rather not make a mess out of the kitchen, Audrey. And I'm a lousy cook, Audrey. So, Audrey, would you make me lunch? I don't speak to her that way. Neither do you speak to God that way. Slow down. Think. Maybe it's a nervousness that drives that sometimes. Where the mouth is running, but the heart is not really engaged. Now, Christ's statement here in verse 7, he is really underscoring and exposing the folly and the sham of thinking like a pagan. We're not to pray like a pagan because pagans have a false view of God and they think that somehow the mechanics... And the statistics of the prayer are going to move God's hand. And that's what I was really trained in as a young Roman Catholic. So, you know, pray 10 Our Fathers and 20 Hail Marys and 3 Acts of Contrition and boom, 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 boom. I thought somehow that was going to move God. It doesn't. If prayer is to be effective, it cannot be hypocritical. It needs to be personal. It needs to be thoughtful. And it's not done to inform God. Look what he says here in verse 8. So do not be like them. Do not pray like the non-Christian Gentiles who thought that they would be heard for their many words. And why not? Because we do not have that kind of God, because that's not the God of the Bible that is revealed. So we do not do as they do, because we do not think as they think. On the contrary, notice, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's not ignorant. We're not there to give Him a lesson to inform Him. God knows everything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He's not ignorant of what is on your heart. You say, then what's the point in even praying if He already knows? Well, you don't pray to inform God. You don't pray to impress God need, nor do you pray somehow to excite God by your many words, you know, because he's reluctant and somehow you have to urge him to move. No, it's a privilege to pray. We have the opportunity to fellowship with God. It's in prayer that we learn the goodness of God. It's in prayer that we sense the presence of God as the Spirit of God prays through us. And it's in prayer that we can claim the promises that he has given us for whatever it is that we are praying for. It's in prayer that we can praise and worship God. It's one of the greatest privileges, not to mention that he allows us to participate in the ruling and the administration of the kingdom of God through prayer. So back to James chapter 5, we're thinking about effective prayer, and I thought it would be helpful to pause and to see what the half-brother of Jesus said, because this was a man who grew up in that home with the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, I can give you in one simple word why it is that much prayer is not answered, and it is simply the word sin. Sin. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we know by nature, Paul says it in Romans 3 and verse 10, and he's quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. So we need to ask a critical question here. Is the Apostle James speaking about positional righteousness, what we call salvation, justification? Or is he speaking about practical righteousness, experiential righteousness, Well, certainly we need positional righteousness to see our prayers answered. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Solomon is contrasting the Old Testament believing saint with the raw pagan of his day. In New Testament terms, Solomon would be contrasting the born-again person or the person who's only had a natural birth, only one birth has never been born again. And if you've never received Christ as your personal Lord, then there's no possible way that you are deemed righteous in God's sight. You become righteous when there's a point and a moment in your life when you admit your bankruptcy to God and you put your full faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, period. That's something that is then given to you. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5 and verse 17? He speaks of those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. When you receive the gift of righteousness and it's gifted to you, you don't earn a gift. You receive it, then you are declared righteous. You are given positional righteousness. And so Paul can say, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The Father made Jesus who is sinless to be sin on our behalf. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross so that, Paul writes, we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God in Christ. Everyone within the sound of my voice... You are either in your righteousness, which is like filthy rags, making you by nature a child of wrath, or you have been gifted with God's righteousness. You have been given justification. You say, well, which one is James referring to? Practical righteousness. You say, how do you know? The context, it's clear. Who is he writing to? save people. He's writing to believers who are children of God, his brethren. He's writing to people who have already been trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so he wants them to make sure that their heart is clean, that they can approach the throne of God with a sense of boldness. You know, very often we take those verses that God uses to describe his people out of fellowship, and we dump it on the unbeliever to say that God doesn't hear and answer their prayer. Verses like Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Notice the psalmist does not say, if I sin, the Lord will not hear, because James has said we all sin, we all stumble in many ways. But rather, if we cherish, as the ESV renders it, if we harbor, as the net translation puts it, then Adonai will not hear. Isaiah drives home the same truth to believing Jews. We can certainly apply this verse to the lost, and it's a legitimate application, but don't miss the original context. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem was not God's strength because his strength was not diminished. The Lord's hand, Yahweh's hand, is not so short that it cannot save and deliver us. Neither was the problem of God's knowledge, like he didn't know what we were going through. He didn't understand the needs and the challenges that we have. That is, his ear is not so dull that he cannot hear. He can hear because he's omniscient. He can do because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The problem was not God's power. The problem was not God's knowledge. The problem was not God's care. The problem was sin. Iniquity. Now, understand, you cannot sever an eternal relationship with the living God. I'm not saying that people who say you can lose your salvation are heretics, but it's a heretical teaching. And about 10% of the body of Christ say that you can lose your salvation. They're dead wrong. That was not introduced into the six, until the 16th century. It's, it's bad doctrine. But understand, once saved, always saved. And if you are saved, your life will change. And if your life hasn't changed, I meet people all the time, oh, yeah, you know, I got saved when I was 12. Yeah, I've been living with this guy for 10 years. And, but, you know, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Mm-hmm, really? You'll know them by their fruits. But if you are saved, you cannot sever an eternal relationship. The one who believes has eternal life. But I tell you what you can sever, your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God, and your power to pray with God and to move his hand. Do you know how the hunters in Borneo catch the South Sea monkeys? Here's a picture of one. They take a coconut, and they tie it to a tree, and then they make a hole in the coconut, just large enough for the monkey to put his hand through. And in the coconut, they have placed the banana. And the monkey, being a curious animal, will go and he'll look inside the hole. He'll put his hand in there. He'll grab the banana. But because his hand is bigger than the hole, as he squeezes the banana, he cannot extract his hand. Here's another picture. And so when the captor comes, the the monkey will get all excited. He'll scream and he'll plead. I've seen a video on it. Uh, But he'll never let go of the banana. And so they capture him. You say, stupid monkey. Well, we need to say, stupid Christian. We are stupid when we do not relinquish our sin and we hold on to it. How foolish it is to hold on to some sin, some grudge, some habit and that it cancels out the power of prayer in our life. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer like this can accomplish much. You say, well, my prayer doesn't seem to accomplish much. That's why I don't pray much. If your prayer is not accomplishing much, it means one of two things. Either A, you've never been given positional righteousness. You've never been saved. You've never been justified. You may even know the plan of salvation without knowing the man of salvation. You have a head knowledge, but with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Or you have been saved. But you don't have a practical righteousness. You are out of fellowship with God. And so you are not seeing effective prayer. You see that word effective? Again, in the King James, effective, fervent. It's the word energo. You can hear our word energy from it. And of course, the participle that's used here is in the middle voice. Unless you had modern English and ninth grade English, you learned all the various verb tenses. You remember that? Say yes. No, maybe not. (laughs) But if you remember the middle voice, it describes not only action that the individual does, but action that is done to the individual. And so there's something we must do. We have to pray. You've got to jump into the water and start swimming. You have to begin to pray. But it's an energy, it's an effective prayer where God is also acting on you. And so, the New American Standard 2020 tries to capture it when it says, prayer, when it is wrought about. So, it's trying to bring both aspects of the middle participle that's used here. You know, there's something we do, but there's something that God brings about. So, very simply, James is telling us that the petition of an ordinary, everyday child of God is energized when the conditions are met, and then God works in that prayer. Well, was there a biblical character that captured James's attention, that was a model to him, to energize him to be a prayer warrior as old camel knees? And, of course, there is. Who was it? It was Elijah. Let's read about him, verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then it rained, then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. So when the Holy Spirit of God inspires James to describe the prophet Elijah, notice what he does not say. He does not say, Elijah was a mighty prophet and preacher of God and he prayed. Neither does he say, Elijah was a mighty prophet and miracle worker and he prayed. Or Elijah was a man and a model that no one can match. No, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, Elijah plays a prominent role in Old Testament history. And in James' day, he plays a prominent role. In Judaism, to this day, he plays a prominent role. Why? Because they believe what the prophet Malachi says in the final chapter that Elijah is coming again. And so the Bible speaks of the second coming of Elijah during the great and terrible day of the Lord during the tribulation period. That's why I suggested to you in our study of the Revelation that Elijah may be one of the two witnesses, just as Moses and Elijah met the Lord in the Mount of Transfiguration. But in either case, he's coming again, and they're looking forward to that. And of course, in the New Testament, Elijah plays an important role. He's mentioned, no less, I counted this week, again, 30 times. Now, when we look at prophets like Elijah, we tend to think that they were just somehow different. They lived in a different world. They breathed different air than we do, that they were not like us. But James wants to underscore, they're cut out of the same piece of cloth as all of us here today. The ISV renders this verse, Elijah was a man just like us. The Net Bible says, Elijah was a human being like us. The King James translates it, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he was a normal, everyday human being like you and I. He had the same perplexities, frustrations, doubts, problems uh, that you and I face today. Now hold your finger here and turn to 1 Kings 18. Let's go back and look at 1 Kings 18 for a moment. Because again, he is writing to a group of people, Jewish Christians, we learned that in the opening verse, and he understands they know something about Elijah. And so, here in the Epistle of James, he's explicitly teaching us that if Elijah is a man with like passions, if he is a man just like us, then we may be like Elijah in our prayer life. And of course, uh, 1 Kings 18, if you remember, The people of Israel were in idolatry. It was 10 months ago, by the way, that we were here. It seems to me like yesterday. So let me dust off your minds. I did a series on the prophet Elijah 10 months ago. But if you remember, the Jewish people were living in idolatry. So God brought along this prophet who just suddenly appears on the pages of Scripture. His heart is broken over the sin of the people, and he prays earnestly. And the heavens became like brass, no rain. Everything dies. Ahab's out there just looking for a little grass. The cattle are dying. The crops are gone. How long does it go? Three and a half years. We don't learn that from the Old Testament. You wouldn't know that from 1 Kings. Ask a Jew today, how long was the drought? They don't know. But Jesus tells us it was three and a half years, as does James tells us it was three and a half years. You found it, 1837. Here he is. Answer me, O Lord. He is... uh, about ready to have this big revival, remember up there on top of Mount Carmel, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Again, he assumes his first century leaders know something about this man who is not only positionally righteous, he had practical righteousness. Wicked King Ahab is ruling. He was one of Israel's worst kings. He's married to a woman named Jezebel who seems like she is demon-possessed. She certainly has all the marks of it. And they have led the people of Israel into sin as they worship this false god, Baal. Baal, if you remember, was the fertility god. So they were giving credit for the rain and the sunshine and the blessings, not to the one true God, but to this false god, Baal. And so here in 1 Kings 18 we find an illustration of the component parts of effectual fervent prayer. Again, let me dust off your minds and refresh what we studied some time ago. James wants us to see that this is just an ordinary Joe. Certainly he's a man of God, he's called of God, but he's no different in his humanity than any of us here. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So the miracle happens. The fire comes down. The sacrifice is consumed. All the people say, there's only one God. How could we be so foolish? Elijah says, Ahab, go back to Jezreel. He heads back. What does Elijah do? He goes to the top of Carmel. Here's a picture, Mount Carmel or Carmel. I don't care however you want to pronounce it. The Jews say Mount Carmel. Here's the back side of it. Some of you have been here with me. On the very top, you can barely see it. There's a little structure that's run by the Roman Catholics. So the whole miracle took place on this side of it that you're looking at. And if you came all the way down to the bottom of that hill, you can still this day see the brick kid drawn. So he is just shy of the peak, and he has this servant that's working with him. He crouched down on his knees, head between his knees, he prays over and over and over and over again. Now, Elijah has not eaten or drunk that day. He's kind of like the Lord Jesus. Jesus was so consumed with the work one day. He said, Lord, you haven't eaten anything. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Have you ever been involved in the work of the Lord where you just forget? I've been so busy. I haven't eaten since breakfast. Here it is, 9 o'clock. That's Elijah. He's just consumed with the work of God. And The needs and the desires desires of the flesh are secondary to him. He's interested here in the work of the Lord. He is a man who pictures praying without ceasing. So one, there's a place he prays. Why this place? Well, at this point, he goes to the top. It's quiet. It's isolated. It's his prayer closet, so to speak. And again, I hope you have a quiet, secluded place where you can pray It's his prayer closet. And he goes there to be quiet and still before the Lord. Do you have a place like that? When was the last time you were in it? There shouldn't be a week that goes by when you don't get in a place like that. Look, the success and blessing of God, whether it's in your ministry or the raising of your children, it's indexed to your time alone with God in prayer. Look at verse 41. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. I skipped that verse, but I'm coming back to it here. Go up, eat and drink. Now, listen, this is an incredible statement. Go up, eat and drink. He doesn't tell him to repent. Why? Because he doesn't have a heart to repent. Go celebrate King Ahab. This three and a half year drought, it's over. How did he know that? According to verse 43, there's not a cloud in the sky. But he says with great confidence here, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So the curious reader can say, well, how how does he know that? He knows it through the ear of faith. Because the ear of faith hears what you cannot see. Remember Hebrews 11 and verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so he had a promise from God, and God had promised it was going to rain, and though there's not a cloud in the sky, he believes it, and he says, you better head down to Jezreel because I hear the sound of a mighty shower Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now, the Bible here mentions his posture, not to give us a pattern that we necessarily have to follow, but understand a man's posture, a woman's posture is outward evidence of an inward reality. Now, I can pray on my bed at night. David did. I like to go to bed often listening to Scripture. And I fall asleep. Now, I wouldn't want to prepare for the sermon going to bed because it usually only takes about 10 minutes and I'm out. But that's different, that kind of prayer, than the kind of prayer that he has here. I'm not half asleep when I'm in my prayer closet. There's an earnestness here. Do you remember the earnestness of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? In Mark 14, it says, he fell to the ground. In Luke 22, it says, he knelt down. And then Matthew elaborates even further, he fell on his face and he prayed. God the Son prostrated himself before God the Father, and he prayed and he said, oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Have you ever wanted the will of God so passionately that you were on your face, on your belly, before God in prayer? I'll tell you why some of you have never done that. Because you're self-sufficient and proud. I told a brother, I said, I've told this to many a brother. I said, if you and your wife will get on your knees... Instead of fighting 24-7 and talking the problem over, but get on your knees and pray about it. You know what? God can do something. He came up to me, as many of these guys have. You know what, Pastor? I took your advice, and our marriage is different. I can't believe it. <laughs> Don't be shocked. God answers earnest prayer. Prayer. I think of Mark 1.35 in reference to the Lord now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to his solitary place place, and he prayed there. That's Mark 1.35. And it's an interesting day. There are 52 days that are recorded in the life of Christ in the four gospels. In this particular day where he gets up early before the light even comes up of the sun is one of the busiest recorded days in the life of Christ. It was a day that was filled with miracles, healing, teaching, and preaching as you put all the accounts together. And yet he gets up early because it's his need to pray. If you've ever been in full-time ministry or if you even have a job where you are constantly, habitually intersecting with people, then you know the drain. Jesus knew that, and he saw his need. Now, if that was his need, what's your need? What's my need? So here's Elijah. You know why he's so bold, and he can preach the way he does to King Ahab? Because before he ever has an audience with an earthly king, he has had an audience with the king of kings. He's been in the presence of God Almighty And James has already told us that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that you always need to be kneeling or prostrate before God, but I want to tell you something. If that's never been your posture, there's a problem in your life. And today would be a good day to take some inventory. You think it's by accident that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Prayer, it's hard work. Look at verse 43. He said to his servant, go up now. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Go up now. Look toward the sea. If you go to the top of Mount Carmel, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. It's right there. Look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. Six times he sent his servant to the crest of the hill. He asked, what do you see? He comes back each time, nothing. Look at verse 44. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Now, the progression is important. It's a progression of expectant, persistent prayer. He's crouched down. He's in a quiet place. He has his head between his knees. He comes up for air. Go check. Comes, goes back down. Comes back nothing. Go check. Comes. What if he quit on the fifth or sixth time? There would have been no rain. But he stayed with it. Go back seven times. And finally, when you come to verse 45, the sky grows black with clouds and a wind, and there's the actual heavy shower. Again and again and again and again and again and again, seven times he doesn't quit. You know, some of us have quit. I prayed 10 years for one of my sisters to come to Christ. I prayed 18 years for another sister to come to Christ. And I prayed over 30 years for one of my brothers to come to Christ. You say, well, God says it's going to rain. What does Elijah need to do? He needs to pray. Because what you find here is the intersection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility God gave a promise, and we need to be doing what Elijah did. We need to be pleading and pleading the promises of God. Find out what Scripture says and take them to the throne of grace. Go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of the heavy roar of a heavy shower. That was a promise. Now, by the way, I think it's interesting that God does not answer prayer in the same way every time. In the case of him dealing with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, it's an immediate, hot, and immediate prayer, and God brings the fire down from heaven. But then he has a delayed wet prayer here. I mean, he's praying, and he's praying, and it's not immediate. And then, of course, there's a time you can read about it in the 19th chapter. He prays for something, and God just flat out says, no, it wouldn't be good for your life. So for obvious reasons, God can answer immediately, but his timing is always perfect. Sometimes prayer just seems to be effortless, and there's an immediate answer. And sometimes it's agonizing. And I'll tell you, when you go through those agonizing prayers, you just fall on your face and you thank God because you know he did it. George Mueller, many of you know him from the orphanages he ran in Great Britain, a great man of faith, after he was converted, shortly after, I read in one book, the day he was converted, he prayed for one particular friend. In fact, he prayed for that friend to find the Lord his entire life, and he did at his funeral. Persistent, earnest prayer, verse 45 a little while, the sky grew black, the clouds and the wind, and there was a heavy shower. Verse 46, then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Here's a map, Mount Carmel to Jezreel. It's 18 miles. Picture this. Here's Ahab. He gets in his chariot, and Ahab takes that garment, he tucks it in or takes it off, and off he goes. And he outruns this man all the way to Jezreel. It's incredible. He is bent in prayer, but now he is energized from that prayer. That's what God does. And I love the phrase here, the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah. What a great statement to be said of you or me. The hand of the Lord is on your life. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Earnest prayer brings great blessing. You know what I want for this church more than anything else? I just want the hand of God to be on it. And it comes when we corporately, together, pray. Some of you have been praying on Wednesday nights in your home. You've gone during this month to the homepage. You've clicked on that icon, and there's a list of prayer requests. We need that. We need it in our marriages. We need it in the raising of our children. We need it if we are to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, notice how the letter concludes. My, I'm preaching long, but thank you for listening. You want a cheap sermon? Come to the first hour. (laughs) My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Now, I suppose as born-again Christians, we are more successful in bringing people into the kingdom than we are restoring someone who has fallen. Do you remember Paul's advice, writing in the margin, Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, now listen to the qualifications and the warning. You who are spiritual should club him. No, not exactly. You who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Those of you who are medical doctors can appreciate the term because Paul uses a medical term of a compound fracture of two bones that are out of joint, and they're brought back together. Each one, he adds, look into yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, don't take the pious attitude if you're the one who is spiritually mature who's called to restore this brother. Like, that could never happen to me. Man, he's messed up his marriage. He's been immoral. That could never happen to me. As soon as you start thinking that way, you're attempting the devil to tempt you. Remember Peter in the night the Lord was betrayed? Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys. I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. Of course, he denies him three times that night. James is recognizing when people read a letter like this, that we're going to notice some people who once served in the army faithfully, but they have gone somewhere, they've disappeared. And he wants us to be in a search and rescue mission. It's well been said the Christian army is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. We need to rescue those who have fallen. We need to go with gentleness. We need to go with humility, watching for ourselves lest we too be tempted. What a great epistle James is. You say, Pastor, I don't know that I've ever really seen an answer to prayer. Some of the things that seemingly were answers could have just happened. I can't say, this is a direct answer from the hand of God Almighty. Maybe because you've never been saved. I can promise you there's one prayer he will answer. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. A Pharisee went into the temple one day and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the other man with a broken heart said, Even unwilling to look up into heaven, he was so filled with shame and guilt, God be merciful to me, literally, the sinner. One man went home dignified. The other man went home justified. One man was ready to drop into hell lest he repent. The other man was ready to step into heaven because he was saved. God will answer the prayer of the repentant sinner and he will save you and forgive you and though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the promises of this short little letter. Thank you for allowing us to study it these eight months. We're so grateful for the things that we've learned. Help us to apply, as James said, right in the front end of this letter, not just to be those who hear the word, but those who obey it. Lord Jesus, we think of you when you went into the temple to pray at the beginning of your ministry, and then at the end, and how you cleansed it. And in your righteous anger, you turned over the tables. Ministry that was nothing more than merchandising. And you said that this house should be a house of prayer. Well, we know that you no longer have a literal temple in which you appear. But you have made us the temple of the living God, both corporately and individually. And may it be said in your grace that this temple is a house of prayer. And we ask it to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.